the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Let's uh, finish off from last week, and then we'll get stuck into what we're doing today. So last week, we ended up at page... Page 135. Yeah. So uh, up until now, in like in, we had the we've had the offertory, Thanksgiving prayer, the prayer of the prothesis, the absolution of the ministers, what we call the Pauline circuit. So what I showed you yesterday, where the priest goes around the altar three times, senses the shape of the cross here, venerates the gospel, goes around the church. Um, it's goes around the church, then returns, offers incense again, does incense in the shape of the cross at the front, and is finished. Meanwhile, they're singing hymns. The hymns that they're singing are on page 131. Yeah? If it's... <coughs> in this book, it's really good because it tells you the instructions in red. If it's a Saturday or a Sunday except for the great fast, or a major feast, or the 50 days after Easter, and all non-fasting days, we sing this hymn. It says, This censer of pure gold, bearing the aroma, is in the hands of Aaron the priest, offering up incense on the altar. And then, on fasting days, except great fast and Jonah's fast, um, on Saturday and Sunday of the great fast, on the two feasts of the cross, it's a different hymn, the golden censer is the virgin. Her aroma is our saviour. She gave birth to him. He saved us and forgave us our sins. Apparently at one time, these two hymns were said ev all the time, just after each other. But then there was a change in liturgical practice over time, centuries. Just a little bit of a promo. If you're really, really interested in this stuff, there's a course being run next year in June by Dr. Ramos Mikhail, who did his PhD on the, the prothesis, which is the offertory and the prayer that we covered last week. He's from America and he's going to fly down next year in June to do a two, two or three weekend intensive on how the liturgy developed, or sorry, how different parts of Egypt had slight variations in how they prayed the liturgy during the Middle Ages. So it'll be really exciting if, if this stuff really, really interests you. And then on the weekdays of the Great Fast and during Jonah's Fast, uh, they chant him, You are the censer of pure gold bearing the blessed ember. And then if the priest still hasn't finished going around the church, if you turn the page, they sing what's called the hymn of intercessions. And the, these hymns are supposed to be chanted until the priest finishes sensing the church. And then he returns. And then we're on the bottom of the page of page 133. Then starts the readings. So we have uh, the reading, uh, a reading from one of the epistles of St. Paul. That's the first reading. This, um, just a handout with Sabina. The second reading is from what we call the Catholic epistles, which are the other epistles in the New Testament. The third reading is from the book of Acts. The fourth reading is called the Synexarium, which is the reading of the saints. The fifth reading is a verse from the Psalms. And the sixth reading is a gospel, a gospel reading. Let's go through each of these really quickly. Pauline reading. At the end of page 133, the deacon... Uh, says the introduction to the Pauline reading. He says, Paul, the servant of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
called to be the apostle appointed to the gospel of God. And then he says, from St. Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, from St. Paul's epistle to the Hebrews, from St. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, may his blessings be with us all. Amen. Meanwhile, it's really interesting, something you wouldn't notice because it's done inaudibly, so not out loud, it's not, in, it's not audible. On page 135, during the reading of the Pauline epistle, the priest says a prayer. Okay, Let's read this prayer together and see what it sounds like and what the, the prayer is asking for. Page 135. The priest says, so you can't hear this, he says it inaudibly as the, the deacon is reading the Pauline epistle. He says, O Lord of knowledge and provider of wisdom, who reveals the deep things out of darkness and gives a word to those who preach with great power, who of your kindness has called upon Paul, who was for some time a persecutor to be a chosen vessel. And in this you were pleased that he should be called to be an apostle and a preacher of the gospel of your kingdom, O Christ our God. You also now, a good one and lover of mankind, we ask you, grant us and all your people a mind free from wandering and a clear understanding that we may know and understand how profitable are your holy teachings which are now read to us through him. And as he followed your example, O author of life, so make us also worthy to be like him in deed and in faith, that we may glorify your holy name and glory in your cross at all times. And unto you we send up glory, honor, and worship with your good Father and the Holy Spirit, the giver of life, who is of one essence with you now at all times, unto the ages of ages. Amen. What are your thoughts on that prayer? Yep, ends with another glorification of the Holy Trinity. So that, that common thread that we're speaking about through the whole Coptic liturgy. Very nice. You could see Paul right through it. Sorry? Emphasis on Paul. I love this. I love that second last paragraph. That we may glorify your holy name and glory in your cross at all times. It's very Paul. Yeah? It keeps the reading in the context of the living worship of the people rather than just being a piece of literature mm. yeah yeah very nice and, and, and like from that you could see that in, at least now we could see in the church there's a prayer for everything and for everything there's a prayer yeah so we're doing a reading the church isn't content it's not just a reading we're going to pray that <laughs> that how we, we what, what are the exact words That we don't wonder and that we have a clear understanding. So for everything, there's a prayer in the church. Um, the, the question is, was this always inaudible? I'm not too sure. I heard from someone who did some study on this that all the inaudible prayers were out loud or, some, or maybe introduced a bit later, but I'm not too sure. But maybe I could ask Ramaz on those ones. He's really good at finding out answers. And then after the Pauline epistle, we read what we call the a, a, a reading from one of the Catholic epistles. They're one of the other epistles in the New Testament, such as from Peter, from James, from John, etc. Right? And the deacon would say, the Catholic epistle of our father James, my beloved. The Catholic epistle of our father John, my beloved. Yeah? And again, on the page, 138, as... Catholic epistle is being read. What does the priest do? He prays. 
O Lord our God, through your holy apostles, has revealed to us the mystery of the gospel of the glory of your Christ, and have given to them according to the great immeasurable gift of your grace, that they should proclaim among all nations the glad tidings of the unsearchable riches of your mercy. We ask you, our Master, make us worthy of their share and inheritance. Grant us at all times to walk in their footsteps, and to imitate their struggle, and to have communion with them in the sweat which they accepted for the sake of godliness. Watch over your holy church, which you have founded through them, and bless the sheep of your flock, and make this vine, the vine being the church, to increase, which your right hand has planted in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then, glorification to the Holy Trinity, of the Holy Trinity, through whom the glory, the honor, the dominion, and worship are due to, unto you with him and the Holy Spirit, the giver of life, who is of one essence with you now, all times, unto the ages of ages. Amen. Then after that, it says here, if the priest hasn't prayed what we looked at two weeks ago, the litany of the oblations. So the litany, remember we, we looked at the, the litany of the priest says in matins over the gifts for the people that provided the gifts. If he hasn't prayed it yet, because on some days in, in matins, you don't pray that litany, he'll pray it inaudibly. He'll have the answer in his hand and he'll pray this inaudibly as we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Once he finishes that, the day chant a hymn on page 142. At the bottom of 142. Hail to you, O Mary, the beautiful dove who has born to us God the Logos. And that hymn could change depending on the season of the church. If it's the Feast of the Nativity, it will have a different verse. If it's another saint's day, you could say another saint after St. Mary. If it's the Great Lent, you'll have a different a hymn there. So there's always variety throughout the year. So if you actually look at the liturgical calendar of the church, there's always variety. So starting, say for example, you start with the liturgical calendar starts on September 11, the Feast of the Nairuz, Coptic New Year. That's a festive period. And then straight after, you have the Feast of the Cross. A couple of months after, you have Advent. Then a few weeks after, a couple of weeks after, you have Epiphany and the Wedding of Khan of Galilee, circumcision around there as well. Then you have Jonah's Fast, then you have Great Lent, then you have the Holy Fifty, then you have the Apostles, then you have a small break, then you have St. Mary's. And then you have the Feast of the Coptic New Year again. There's always variety. There's always a different tune a different hymn to be said. So it's never the same. And then you end that hymn with a glorification to the Holy Trinity. Blessed are you indeed with your good Father and the Holy Spirit if you have come and saved us. Meanwhile, the priest holds the censer in his hand, stands at the altar, and please turn to page 144, and signs the incense box and says, Glory and honor, honor and glory to the All-Holy Trinity, the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit, now and at all times unto the ages of ages. Amen. He puts one spoonful of incense into the censer, stands before the altar, okay, and he says a prayer while they're reading the Acts. Okay, what does he say? O God, who accepted the burnt offering of Abraham and prepared for him a sheep in Isaac's stead, even so, again, accept at our hand also our master the burnt offering of this incense, and set down upon us in return for it your abundant mercy, cleansing us from every stench of sin, and make us worthy to serve in holiness and righteousness before your goodness, O lover of mankind, all the days of our life. And then what does he do? What he did in the Pauline circuit. He goes around three times, saying the same responses. He comes out, does the cross with the same responses, venerates the gospel with the same thing, same words that we said last time, offers incense to the other, his brother priests like before. But rather than going around the whole church, he just goes around the front of the church. Right? 
Some people say that he only goes around the front of the church because in the book of Acts, the focus was on Jerusalem. Whereas St. Paul went beyond to the Gentiles. So the priest only senses the front of the church, Jerusalem, and for the poor line, he goes around the whole church. He finished that. After, um, after that, they read, if you go to page 146, the priest will read the Senexarion, which is an account of the saint of the day. So every day, we would read the, um, a small uh, summary of the um, life of the, of the saint of the day or of the event of the day. For example, most saints, you celebrate two feasts for them. The day they were martyred and the day their church was consecrated for most saints. And then you might have an event like a, a, a lordly feast, like on Sundays, the Feast of the Transfiguration. We'll read from the Senexarium on that. So far in the Divine Liturgy, this is the fourth reading. Okay? What do you mean? Yeah. Uh, from from the book called the Synexarium, which was compiled in the Middle Ages, the uh, the book that's older than that, that uh, concerns the lives of the saints, is a bit different. It's called the Antiphonarium, or in Arabic the Difnar. Um, it used to be said the eve before or in the midnight service. Um, it's called Antiphonarium because it's split up into verses and one side chants one and then the other side chants another verse. It's called Antiphonically, okay? one versus the other. And it's, a, it's actually a very different style. Like the Synexarium says, on this day this saint was martyred, she was born here to the Christian parents and then she went to the emperor and the emperor told her to renounce the faith and he will give her all the gold in the world. And she said, no, how can I deny my Christ? And he persecuted her like this, like this, like this, like this. And then the angel appeared to her and she died and she received the crown of martyrdom and some believers came and took her body. It's, they generally followed the same template. Yeah. Sorry? Just a, a general saint, yeah. They generally have a very similar template, yeah? And then you have specifics. The antiphonarium doesn't have that much detail. And it, it will say like um, a small uh, summary and then it will say, um, it will start praising the person. Like, oh, St. George, who are struggle-mantled and strong in wars. Oh, you who are such and such and such. That's a little bit more, um, uh, that's earlier or more ancient than the Synexarium. And the Senexarium can be added to. For example, if the church canonizes a saint, it could add a saint to the Senexarium. If he's canonized. Yeah. Yeah. Sammy? Yeah, answer my question, but I have another one. What determines if a saint becomes canonized or not? Uh, that's a good question. We don't have as, as like really, really strict rules like uh, in other Western churches. So the, it's mainly up to the discretion of the Holy Synod. The general policy is 50 years, although recently Pope Cyril VI and St. Javier Gerges were canonized. Pope Cyril hasn't passed away, didn't pass away 50 years ago, but Javier Gerges did, St. Javier Gerges. So just if the Synod deems that their life is an example and they could be venerated as a saint. But I think that from what I hear, they're working on like very clear guidelines. Yeah. But it's the church, I think in the last 100 years, we've only added three or four. Bishop Abraham and his disciple, Abuna Mikhail, Father Mikhail, and then Pope Cyril and uh, St. Habib Gerges. Yeah, I think like, it's not something that happens often. Yeah. Two miracles, okay. Anglicans just follow what 
Yeah. Hmm. I don't. Uh, who? Sorry. Yeah. yeah, we definitely don't have the miracle rule, and I think because there's no miracle that's recorded for Saint Hebe of Gergis. Um It's it's not a formal. It's not the fifty euro is not formal. Yeah. I remember Bishop Ephonius was saying to when he was here a month ago, he was saying that I think they're, they're trying to work on, that in the Synod, they're trying to work on some sort of policy as to how it's but mechanized. They've waited a while. They've yeah. waited a certain number of years. Yeah. Is that to, I heard that they wait a while to see if miracles occur. Oh. I'm not sure. I, I, personal view, I think it's good to wait, wait a while because you may you guarantee that the people that are close to that person have passed away and there's no like uh, because we knew him or her we want them to be venerated yeah but then you could ask also another question how do we choose the readings that are read from the lectionary every day so if you look at um, at the this was at the end of last week's handout which is okay i'll read it for you the um there's several lectionary books okay by the way because we're a small group i'm just going to keep going until you tell me to stop okay (laughs) Um, there's several lectionary books okay for example there's one for the Sundays that's a separate book yeah the Sundays have their their sequence then you have one for the year days Monday to Saturday in annual times then you have another one for Great Lent that has every day from the first day of Great Lent all the way to the end, including Sundays and weekdays. Then you have another one for the Holy 50 days after Easter. But is that the second one? Does that exclude Great Lent? Yes, yeah. yeah. So Great Lent is a separate one, yeah. Then you have the Holy 50 days, and then you have Passion Week, Holy Week. They're the, that's the lectionary for the year, right? So for example, today. Today is an annual day. Even though it's the fast of the Virgin Mary, it doesn't fall under Great Lent. So it's an annual day but how do you choose the the how how are the readings selected right the weekday readings are based on the synexarium of the day for example if today if if it's a if a day is the departure of a patriarch you'll find the readings are the same on every day of the departure of a patriarch so the lectionary for the weekday is taken based on whose feast we're commemorating that day for example if it's the commemoration of a prophet, you take it from the 8th of Tort, which is the feast day of Moses the prophet. If it's the commemoration of one of the disciples, you take it from the day of the martyrdom of St. Peter and Paul. If it's a commemoration of one of the 70 apostles, you take it from the day of the martyrdom of St. Stephen the Archdeacon. That's why weekday readings repeat themselves. That's why if you come during the week, you might be like, oh, I just heard this gospel three days ago. Yeah, because it's, it's a similar feast day. If it's a commemoration of a martyr of the Universal Church, so pre, like, Universal Church, yeah, the text from the 25th day of Hatur, which is the martyrdom of St. Mercurius, an Egyptian saint of the two swords. If it's of a Coptic martyr, it's taken from the martyrdom of St. Mina. If it's a patriarch, it's taken from the martyrdom of St. Peter, the seal of the martyrs who was a patriarch. If it's a monk, they're taken from the departure of St. Anthony the Great. So the, the the book actually says like for example, if you um, <laughs> 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 
It happens. <laughs> yeah, so for example, if, if you open the, the lectionary, this is for the year days, and it will be like the seventh day of Torba, the readings of this day are taken from the readings of the 17th day of Hator. So you go to the 17th day of Hator. So these are the Coptic months, those words. And the Coptic months are modeled on the Pharaonic months. So that's part of our Pharaonic tradition. Come again. Yeah, so the, uh, the, the calendar is pretty set apart from uh, the dates that are affected by Easter. So, so because Easter, there's a formula to calculate Easter um, that was developed in Alexandria 1700 years ago, that the Easter date affects the following dates. When Great Lent starts, Jonah's fast, when Pentecost is, and when the Apostles' fast starts. Yeah. The Agbeya, the Horologium uh, readings, they're set. So you don't actually get to then read the entire scriptures in, in the year? No, we don't, we don't read the no, no, you don't read the entire scripture, no. Yeah. Alright. Then we get to today's handout. So, for t what I thought I would do is I'll put a table that just shows you... Uh, quick outline of the liturgy so you sort of know what we're up to. So you could roughly split the liturgy into two parts. You could even split it into three. But if for ease, we could say liturgy of the word, first half, liturgy of the faithful, second half. Although the offertory used to be part of the liturgy of the faithful. Yeah? Liturgy of the word, we're up to, right now we'll finish the exarium. We're going to talk about the trisagion, the hymn. Then we have the gospel reading, the sermon, the prayer of the veil, the three great liturgies. Then after that, the people used to, the catechumens, those who were not baptized, would leave in the past. And then the doors would be shut and then they would recite the statement of faith, which is the creed. Hopefully today we finish the prayer of reconciliation, depending on how we go. I'll just try to go a little bit quicker because last time we did this, we did it over 10 parts. This is over seven. So I've included, and the recordings are available if you want the long version, but I've included a lot of quotes today. I'm just going to say, read these in your own time. Um, and I'll just highlight a few of them. So on page 146. After the reading of the Synexarium, they would sing the hymn of the Trisagion. So Tri means three, Agion means holy. So it's the thrice holy hymn. Holy God, holy mighty, holy immortal, born of a virgin, have mercy upon us. Holy God, holy mighty, holy immortal, crucified for us, have mercy upon us. Holy God, holy mighty, holy immortal, risen from the dead and ascended to the heavens of mercy upon us. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit now and ever unto the end of ages. Amen. Now, uh, at there was a bit of a controversy between the Coptic Church and I think Constantinople because we used to say, we say born of a virgin, crucified for us, risen from the dead. But in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they just say, Holy God, Holy Mighty, Holy Immortal, have mercy on us. For them, they're addressing the Holy Trinity. For us, we're obviously speaking about Christ, who was born of the Virgin, who was crucified for us, risen from the dead. There was a bit of controversy in one time. I think I've written a few quotes. They've written a few quotes about this, but there's uh, there's a few quotes that you could read later, especially about a, a tradition that we have in our church about where this hymn came from. Okay, but let's turn to page two on our handout. We then get to the gospel and the sermon. So, 
Of course, before praying the gospel, what's the priest going to do? He's going to say a prayer about or preparing us for the reading of the gospel. Yeah. So on page 147, it's called the litany for the gospel. He says, O Master Lord Jesus Christ, our God, who said to his saintly honored disciples and holy apostles, many prophets and righteous men have desired to see the things which you see and have not seen them, and to hear the things which you hear and have not heard them. But as for you, blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. May we be worthy to hear and to act according to your holy gospel through the prayers of your saints. Then say, pray for the holy gospel, or for the hearing of the holy gospel. Lord, have mercy. And then the priest continues, Remember also, O Lord, Remember also our Master, all those who have given us to remember them in our supplications and prayers, which we offer up unto you, O Lord our God, those who have fallen asleep, repose them, those who are to kill them. For you are the life of us all, the salvation of us all, the hope of us all, the healing of us all, and the resurrection of us all. And then inaudibly, he glorifies the Holy Trinity. And you are he unto whom we send up the glory, the honor, and the worship with your good Father, and the Holy Spirit, the giver of life, is of one essence with you, now and at all times, unto the ages of ages. Amen. When he finishes that, the deacon originally is supposed to chant the psalm. He'll be like, a psalm of David, alleluia. And then, based on the season, he'll chant in a specific tune the psalm. And then, the gospel is read. Okay? I won't go through these intricate details. Go to page 156. And we'll just stay there for a second. If you look at page 2 on your handout, a few quotes we want to outline. Yeah? One by Bishop Mateus, who wrote an, an, a contemplative book on the liturgy. He says, The priest continues the litany saying, May we be worthy to hear and to act according to your holy gospels through the prayers of your saints as he asks for the assistance of the grace of God to help us to listen to the words of the gospel and to act upon them so that every believer might become a fifth gospel. That's nice. Now, I think I said this a couple of weeks ago, when we come to church, this, the liturgy should reorient our compass, reorient our life, just like format our hard disk and make us focus on the right thing. This is a very easy, uh, clear example of that. In the liturgy, the priest prays that we may hear and act according to the Holy Gospels. So telling us, when you go home and you read your Bible, what should you also do? You and I pray that what we hear is taken in and that we act according to the Holy Gospels. That's an example of how the liturgy reorients what we're supposed to do during the week. Justin Mata, second century. On the day which is called the Day of the Sun, Sunday, we have a common assembly of all who live in the cities or in the country, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as much as, much as there is time for. So this is evidence from the second century that readings were a part of the liturgy. Then, when the reader has finished, the one presiding, the priest or bishop, provides in a discourse admonition and exhortation to imitate these excellent things. That's what we call a sermon. Then we all stand up together and say prayers. And as we said before, after we finish the prayer, bread and wine are presented, and it keeps going. Then I've got a lovely contemplation by Father Lev Gillet about how uh, hearing the gospel is not just about hearing but it's about listening and being attentive. But I'll leave that for you to read just because of time. Yeah. And then another quote by Father Alexander Schmemann where he talks about the scripture being read in the church. Let's pause there. Then go back to page 156. Meanwhile, as the gospel is being read, the priest holds the censer 
and offers incense while saying these petitions or these litanies. Okay, let's read them together because they're done inaudibly. Does everyone know where we are in the liturgy so far? Because here it gets there's a lot of inaudible things at the moment, a lot of movement. Yeah, the priest will say he'll stand near the gospel and he'll offer incense and say the following litany. Litanies. O you who are long-suffering, abundant in mercy and true, receive from us our prayers and supplications. Receive from us our petition, repentance and confession upon your holy undefiled altar in heaven. May we be made worthy to hear your holy gospels and may we keep your precepts and commandments and bring forth fruit therein a hundredfold, sixtyfold and thirtyfold in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then a lot of the common word that we say, remember our Lord. So remember Lord the sick. Remember, Lord, those who are traveling, the air of the heaven, the waters, the seeds, the safety of all human beasts, salvation of the holy place, the leader of our land, those in captivity, the fathers and brethren who have fallen asleep, those who bought these gifts, those who are in hardship, the catechumens, and we'll just finish off with that. Remember, our Lord, the catechumens of the people. Have mercy upon them, confirm them in the faith in you, uproot all distinct of idolatry from their heart. Your law, your fear, your precepts, your truths, and your holy commandments establish them in their heart grant that they may know the certainty of the words wherein they have been instructed and in the set time may they be worthy of the washing of the new birth which is baptism for the remission of their sins as you prepare them to be a temple of your holy spirit by the grace compassion love of mankind of your only begotten son our lord god and savior jesus christ through whom the glory the honor dominion and worship are due unto you with him and the holy spirit the giver of life who is upon us with you now all times unto the ages of ages amen okay so that's a prayer that he says during the reading of the gospel. I just have a question as to, and sometimes they're in, I don't know if it's during the gospel or when it is, but some of the inaudible prayers are in the sanctuary. Yep. So at this point, the priest has two options. Either to pray the following section inaudibly during the gospel, usually for the sake of time. And what he'll do is he'll then enter this, the, you'll see the priest stand at the altar with the censer and he'll pray these. These are the, called the three great litanies which we'll read out loud. If he's going to pray them out loud, then he'll just sense here until the gospel's finished. And then he'll go in and pray the three great litanies, which we'll look at now. So he'll do this part, this prayer first, yeah. and then he has the option of going in and starting. Yes, yeah. Um, in, in, in this part of the reading you can, in this part you can, but usually, usually if there's more than one priest, every, every, they'll just take it in turns to pray apart. But there's usually one priest who officiates the liturgy. The parts that he, have to, he has to pray is the offertory until the offertory, the thanksgiving prayer, um, and the poor line circuit. Then the consecration, which is the institution, sorry, the institution narrative, the descent of the Holy Spirit, and the fraction till the end. The, the presiding priest or the officiating priest will pray that. And then the fellow priest, the concelebrants, could pray any of the other parts. The sequence changes um, slightly, except St. Cyril, drastically in St. Cyril. So after the gospel, the priest has three options. St. Basil, St. Gregory, St. Cyril. St. Cyril is the one that's rarely prayed because the tune isn't really well known, which is interesting because the way that we usually pray St. Basil isn't actually in the tune that it's put down in Coptic, which is very long. So we say in a quicker tune, which we're allowed to do. And then you have St. Gregory, which is the... So St. Basil's prayed the most, then St. Gregory, then St. Cyril, right? 
we could go um we could maybe at the end go through a little bit of it if if you guys still want to saint basil's is addressed to the father saint cyril's is addressed to the father saint gregory's addressed to the son how do we know that oh let's do that at the end if you don't mind with that part at the end and just have a, a quick look at the different orders different structure Sequence prior is the same, yeah. Yeah, the sequence prior is the same, yeah. Except in the liturgy of St. Cyril, you don't have the option of praying the three great litanies now. They don't exist at this point. But I'll talk about that at the end, maybe. We'll see the different parts. Then we get to page 160. The priest has finished the sermon. He'll pray what's called the prayer of the veil. Okay, it's a prayer that he says before he enters the sanctuary again. And from this prayer on until the end of the liturgy, he's not leaving the altar. Up until this point, he's chosen the lamb, placed it on the altar. He's moved around the church a lot. So he's left the altar. And he, that's why there's the cloth, the prosperin, that is, has covered it, which some people say reminds us of the tomb of Christ. But then before he's about to return, he'll say this prayer. Now let's read it and look at the tone of the prayer and tell me if, it, if the tone is similar to another prayer that we read a few weeks ago. He says... O God, who in your ineffable love towards mankind sent your only begotten Son into the world, that he might return the lost sheep to you. We ask you, our Master, turn us not back when you put our hands on this awesome and bloodless sacrifice. For we put no trust in our righteousness, but in your mercy, whereby you have given life to our race. We ask and entreat your goodness and love of mankind, that this mystery, which you have administered to us for salvation, may not be unto condemnation to us or to any of your people but unto the wiping out of our sins and the forgiveness of our negligence, and unto the glory and honor of your holy name, O Father and Son and Holy Spirit, now and at all times and the ages of ages. Amen. The tone of this prayer, what does it sound like? Similar to which other prayer? Right before the hand washing, yeah? The prayer preparation, where the priest is approaching with, a, you could say, contriteness the words invokes like uh, 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 an attitude of humility turn us not back when we put our hands on this awesome bloodless sacrifice we put no trust in our righteousness but in your mercy some people think that this these inaudible prayers have a syrian orange origin not an alexandrian but a syrian origin some people say that he'll say that silently while the people are saying what we call the gospel response. On annual days they say this hymn, Blessed are they in truth, the saints of each of this day, each one according to his name, the beloved of Christ. And a few verses. All, if it's a feast day, there's a different response. If it's a fasting day, there's a different response. And then we get to page 162. These are the three great or three long litanies, which we'll read because it's, we, we rarely pray them out loud these days. Some churches do, but a lot of churches don't because of um, just time. So there are three litanies. When we say three great litanies, we're referring to these three. Peace of the church, the fathers, so the bishops and the patriarch, and our assemblies, the congregation. These are what we call the three great litanies. Let's read them. The words are actually very nice. The priest says, again, let us... Uh, so the general introduction called to prayer, Ishlil, let us pray. Stand up for prayer, crosses the people, peace be with you all. Then page 163. He says, Again, let us ask God, the Pantocrator. Pantocrator, sometimes translated almighty, but Pantocrator is, is a more accurate uh, translation. And I think in this book, 
they have uh, on page uh, six vi they've given you some definitions of pantocrator logos paraclete economy theotokos etc you can look at those we ask in the truth of goodness, O lover of mankind, remember, O Lord, the peace of your one, only, holy, Catholic and apostolic church. The deacon gives the people instruction. Pray for the peace of the one, one holy, Catholic and apostolic orthodox church of God. Lord, have mercy. Then the priest says, this which exists from one end of the world to the other. So the church which exists from one end of the world to the other. All peoples and all the flocks bless the heavenly peace sent down into all of our hearts. Even the peace of this life graciously grant to us, the leader, the armies, the rulers, the counselors, the multitudes, our neighbors, our coming in and our going out. So that's a nice way of saying all our activities. Adorn them with all peace. This is a pray for peace. What's the source of our peace? This next section. O King of Peace, grant us your peace, for you have given us all things. Acquire us to yourself, O God, our Savior. For we know none other but you. Your holy name we utter. May our souls live by your Holy Spirit, and let not the death of sins have dominion over us, we your servants. And then he crosses the people and says, Nor over all your people. Then they reply, Lord of mercy. Beautiful prayer for peace. And prayer number two for the fathers. Again, let us ask God the Pantocrator, the Father of our Lord, God and Savior Jesus Christ. We ask and treat your goodness and love of mankind. Remember our Lord, our honored Father, the High Priest, Pope Ava. He said the name of the patriarch, Tawadros II. And then you, he may choose to remember the Syriac and the Eritrean patriarch. And then conclude with, and his partner in the apostolic liturgy, our father the bishop. And he mentions the bishop's name in our case, our father the bishop, Ava Suriel. And the deacon has a response, asking the people to pray for the bishop and the pope. Then, at the end of page 166. Keep them secure for us for many years in peaceful times. Fulfilling that holy high priesthood, with which you have entrusted them for yourself according to your holy and blessed will, rightly handling the word of truth, shepherding your people in purity and righteousness. That's a bit of a job description for the bishop and the pope. Handling the word of truth, so defining what is correct doctrine and shepherding people. And, and also their delegates, who are the, pre, uh, the deacons and the priests and all the people. How do we know that? Look what he says. And all the orthodox bishops, hegemons, priests and the deacons and all the fullness of your one, only, holy, Catholic and apostolic church. But the bishop, as we see in the writings of St. Paul, one of his primary roles is to define the word of truth. Grant them and us peace and safety in every, prayer, in every place. Their prayers which they offer on our behalf and on behalf of all your people as well as ours on their behalf. He then places incense in the censer. Receive them upon your holy rational altar in heaven as a sweet savour of incense. All their enemies, visible and invisible, trample and humiliate under their feet speedily. As for them, keep them in peace and righteousness in your holy church. Obviously, we don't have enemies, but by enemies it means people who consider us their enemies, right? I think we will, um, if we can, Let's use this as an opportunity to talk about church hierarchy. What's their role? What's their function? How, we view, how are we to view church hierarchy? And how are we to view authority in the church? You want to do that? Or keep going? Is that, okay? Is that interesting? You want to do that? Okay. Just to, I want to comment on a word used in 167. Fulfilling that high priesthood, holy high priesthood, which you have entrusted them for yourself. 
How many priesthoods do we have? One priesthood. We only have one high priest who is Christ. The priest, we have the general priesthood of all believers. But then we have the ordained priesthood. So a priest or bishop is ordained as a priest, but it's not his priesthood. It's Christ's priesthood. Right? There's only one priest and that's Christ. But then you have an ordained priest who... Sorry? The bishop and then the priest because the bishop can't be in more than one place. But it's important to remember that it's only one priesthood and that is Christ. Yeah? How are we to understand church hierarchy? Let's look at page three. I'm going to read. It's a bit long. <laughs> I'll read. I'll read it as I think. And we'll just stop when we get a bit worn out just because I think it's, it's an interesting thing. The bishop as apostolic witness is intrinsically linked with the Eucharistic nature of the episcopocentric ministry. Since it was the bishop who presided over the Eucharist and therefore expressed and affected the cononia of the church. The episcopocentric ministry was the progressively greater responsibility of the bishop as the head of his community, but never apart from it. He would also acquire to preserve the teachings of the apostolic tradition against emerging heterodox teachings. In other words, the bishop's main role is to preserve canonia. How does he preserve canonia? By celebrating the Eucharist. He can't be at more than one place, so what does he do? He sends a priest to pray on his behalf in the respective parishes in his diocese. That's why I was saying last week when a priest visits another diocese, he needs permission from that bishop to officiate that liturgy. Right? For St. Ignatius of Antioch, the bishop was primarily the one who brought the faithful into Cononia through the celebration of the Eucharist. By the time of St. Irenaeus of Lyons, authoritatively teaching the truth of the gospel within the community also became an indispensable characteristic of the bishop's ministry for upholding unity. Not only celebrating the Eucharist, but teaching the right faith. In writing against the different Gnostic sects, Irenaeus regarded the bishop as the authoritative organ of the genuine apostolic tradition, who could therefore ensure the church's inward continuity and canonia with the apostolic faith. So it's the bishop's job to make sure that what is happening in his diocese is authentically linked to the faith that he was entrusted with. So, like we said, the bishop is like the apostle of that diocese. So, Ambassador is like the apostle of Melbourne. It's his job, his duty to make sure that the teachings, the faith, the practices that we have as a church are apostolic. And that's where we get the apostolic succession from. The connection between apostolic identity and the bishop's ministry of the leadership is expressed in the following. Anyone who wishes to discern the truth may see in every church in the whole world the apostolic tradition clear and manifest. We can enumerate those who were appointed as bishops in the churches by the apostles and their successors to our own day. So you could trace back Pope Shenouda, Pope, uh, Bishop Suriel was ordained by Pope Shenouda, who was ordained by Pope Krollos, who was ordained by three bishops, who were ordained by the Pope before them. And you could keep going all the way back until you get to St. Mark, who was sent out by Christ. So whenever anyone, if someone comes to St. Mary's today and says, on what authority are you calling yourself a church? We say, on the, obviously the authority of Christ, but expressed through Bishop Suriel. And what authority does he have? Expressed through the synod of the church, Coptic Church of Alexandria. Through what authority? Through the apostolic succession. And you could see it in our worship and in our faith, in our creed, and 
history just shows very clearly that it's been the same for 2,000 years. When we say the same for 2,000 years, we don't mean that the liturgy looked exactly the same. We don't mean the icons looked exactly the same. We mean the core of our faith hasn't changed. If the church decides to write another 10 liturgies, it can. If it decides to change how the church looks, it can. They're, they're not the things we're talking about. We're talking about the faith, the theology of the church. Um... Okay, so he continues to talk about apostolic succession. Let's turn the page. Yes. Yeah. Like a, a lower rank of it. Yeah. Four deacons, yeah. Yeah. Uh, let me get back to you if you if you consider a read a part of the priesthood. Yeah. Let me get back to you on that one. Page four. Understanding authority in the church. Because in today's age, authority in any place is not looked upon favorably. People don't like authority. Do we have authority in the church? How, what's the orthodox understanding of authority? Does the priest have authority? Does the bishop have authority? Let's read. If the church is principally seen as an institution enclosed within itself, with a hierarchical structure and jurisdictional boundaries, then the episcopate and priesthood could be interpreted as officers which exercise domineering authority, ruling the faithful. So if you look at the church as an institution, you could say that. Words that we should never use when describing the church. An institution, an organization, the worst one ever. The church is like a business. Like you could have the Pope as the head CEO, bishops as like next line management, priests as middle. That's the worst thing you could ever say in the world. The church is not an organization, it's not an institution, it's not any of those things, right? If it is, then you could have all these negative stuff. It's none of those things at all. This view of the church is not faithful to the teachings of Scripture or to the witness of the church throughout the centuries. Rather, the church can be principally understood in terms of canonia, in communion with God himself and among each other. Viewing authority in the church in light of canonia quickly dispels any perception of domination or authoritative rule in the worldly sense. If you look at it through Canonia, you can't say that we have authority the same way you look outside because no other place could claim to have the Canonia the way that we do. If we call ourselves an organization, then maybe we could go down that path. If we call ourselves an institution, maybe. Yeah? Uh, by the way, I'm open for anyone to disagree with this part. So, keen to hear your thoughts. Instead, authority in the church begins to be seen as a reflection of God's communion with the world in Christ. Thus, authority provides a means for encountering God, emphasizing that all issues of authority must be thoroughly based on communion. The Lord Christ, as the source of authority in the church, provides a perfect model of this approach or spirit in which authority should be exercised. What does he say in Matthew? Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Service is at the heart of Christ's ministry, and therefore at the heart of authority in the church. This is clearly exemplified in the washing of the feet of the disciples before the institution of the Eucharist, in which Christ states, You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. This is the calling of those who exercise authority in the church. So authority in the church is seen as foot washing. 
as those bishops and priests who derive their authority of service from Christ make their respective responsibility to imitate his life and ministry of service. And you see this reminder in the washing of the feet service on Holy Thursday and in the uh, apostles, uh, who washes people's feet? The most senior priest. If the Pope is here, the Pope is the one who washes the people's feet because it's a reminder of that. And then I'm sure why you're thinking is you think a couple of things. Then why when the bishop or the patriarch is present in a liturgy, is there a procession? Does he have a special throne? Does he wear special vestments? How does that align with this? We'll get to that in a second. But does it make sense so far? If we're looking at the church through canonia, then the, the word authority has a completely different meaning. Viewing authority in the church in terms of canonia and Christ's ministry clearly shows that the church does not create 
any external authority for the sake of security and obedience, but rather provides the means for personal and free existence and communion. Authority then stems from and aims for canonia, and any ministry can only be authoritative if it stems from and leads to communion. In this light, authority cannot be seen to exist to impose itself on the faithful, but rather to uphold canonia and the union of the church. For example, if something is a threat to the canonia of the church, the priest or the bishop can't say, oh, my job is to wash feet, I can't talk. Washing feet doesn't mean to be timid or to be irresponsible or to be negligent. Sometimes washing feet means th to be firm and to say, you, so, so and so, you are threatening the canonia of the church through your teaching or through your practice. The church is advising you to please stop and we'll help you. There's a healing community. The person keeps going and keeps going like Arius. And we have no choice but to exclude you from the canonia. Right? So this foot washing doesn't mean that the church is to be timid and like, and then the, what we quote, slap, uh, turn the other cheek. Well, we know, I think we spoke about this a few, let's tend to go, a few weeks ago. Turn the other cheek has nothing to do with being a pushover. Turn the other cheek has mo more got to do with say, hey, slap me as an equal. Yep. Yeah. But not By making decisions in Canonia not isolated. So these things aren't made with one person doesn't make these decisions. So these decisions are made in groups. So they're not made in isolation. Ideally, these things are done in, in groups. So for example, if it's something very like a big threat to the church, the synod would meet and decide what to do about this. I, th I think that way though that story is painted is not I don't think it's that dramatic like they say like I, I don't think it was literally him versus everyone else I think it was more like don't get me wrong I think it's, it's a way of telling the story but the the church at the time saw that Arius was some people went with him but the church saw that he it's a, a synodical decision yeah yeah yeah, but the church. The well, and that's how you get divisions. That's where that's where you get the splits from from things like that. But if we're talking about like in a in a just a even in a local parish setting, if someone is a threat to the canonia, through not a threat or like is like I, I think if to, part of the church requires humility, and humility means that we need to be open to someone saying, hey. Can we try to do things in a different way? But there's no authority. Like the, the, in the same way that we look at worldly authority, because the church is not a worldly institution or organization. But that doesn't mean that the church cannot do things that it needs to do to operate in a 21st century world. For example, financial things, uh, legal things, having an act, an act of parliament, having, um, uh, find, trying to find ways to secure funds to... Uh, allow its various initiatives to run. 
That doesn't mean that the church is operating, operating in a secular sense at all. It doesn't mean that. But what we're trying to say is how do we view the church? It's, it's, it's sort of like they're, they're not mutually exclusive. We are a hierarchical church, if, but looking, Bishop Callistus says it like this. It's not like this, like top down. It's a series of circles. Christ around him, the, not, around, not around him, but they're closer to him. Uh, we, I've really got to clarify. I don't mean anyone who is ordained is closer to God than anyone else. It's completely inaccurate. We're trying to say, if you want to look at authority in that sense, Christ is given the authority to bishops, to priests, to deacons, etc. And they just pass it along, as opposed to top-down. But at times, things go wrong. In our church history, we've had popes make mistakes, bishops make mistakes, priests make mistakes. And this church gets together and either tells them, you need to fix what you're doing, and they do, or they don't, and they say you need to stop exercising your priesthood, or priesthood of Christ. You don't have authority to do that anymore. That happens in the history of our church. Um... I think that's it. Yeah, next page, sorry. Just that first, that last paragraph. I like this sentence. The bishop, the episcopate, sorry, as an authority in the church rather than over the church. I'll say that again. The, the, the bishop, the episcopacy, is an authority in the church, within the canonia, as opposed to over the church. Like a dad in the family, not an uncle. Yeah? also preserves the historical continuity of the mission of the Christ through apostolic succession. Furthermore, the Episcopal serves as an organ of the Church's Catholicity, so universal, by expressing the unity of communion in each place, expressing the historical continuity of the Church, and expressing the communion and unity of the Church in space. In other words, you could say that in the Diocese of Melbourne, we are all connected because we have one bishop within a geographical area, and historically because the teaching and the practice and the sacramental life of the church has apostolic authority through the bishops all the way to St. Mark. The bishop is the direct connection between Christ, the apostles, and the local church, emphasized in Ignatius' famous saying, wherever the bishop is, there is a church. Thus, the episcopacy stemming from Christ himself and engrafted into the college of the twelve disciples by ordination is essential to upholding the canonia of the church, which is at the very heart of the nature and purpose of the church. Now then, a logical question that comes after that is, why when the bishop and the pope visit church, do we have all these hymns, and all these vestments, and all these sensing, right? And there are some bishops, for example, that refuse it, and some bishops who allow it. It doesn't mean one's better than the other. There's two ways to look at it. One, you could look at it like, don't do this stuff. I don't like, uh, like in a, hum- in a humble sense. And the other way, it's still humility in saying, this actually isn't about me, it's about Christ. And we're allowed to have both rights. In the history of the church, you have a monastic right, things that happen in monasteries, and a cathedral right, things that happen in the world. But if you actually look at a lot of what we're saying to the bishop, it's not about the bishop, it's about Christ. Because he is the representation or the presence of that apostolic succession in the church. So when the bishop stands on the throne, it's not about him. And how do we know it's not about him? Because remember in, in week one, when we spoke about the stole, you don't take the stole at ordination, it's given to you. The grace of the priesthood is given. It's not earned, it's given. And even if the priest or the bishop was living a sinful life, 
we would still do exactly the same thing in church. And proof of that. Remember we spoke about there was a controversy in the early centuries over priests who at times of persecution gave up the faith. Said, oh, we're idol worshippers now. And then the persecution ended and they came back. And then the people said, well, I'm not having communion from you. And they convened a local council and they said, of course you're going to have communion from them. Because the grace of the priesthood has nothing to do with their personal life. It's not, because if it does, it means that what happens on the altar has got to do with how good they are. No, it's a grace given to them. It's a gift given to them. What their personal life involves, that's between them and God. But it doesn't affect what happens on the altar, what happens in the sacraments. And there's also the verse from the Gospel of Matthew. He who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. He who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. That's personally how I look at it. Yeah? But I'll give you a very quick example. Please go to page 596. Yeah? During the entrance of the patriarch, we say this famous hymn which we say on Palm Sunday, Vlogimenos. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, again in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the Son of David, again to the Son of David. Hosanna in the highest, again in the highest. Hosanna to the King of Israel, again to the King of Israel. Let us chant, saying, Alleluia, 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 glory be to our God, again glory be to our God. That's talking about who? Christ. But who's walking in? The patriarch. So what's he saying? It's venerating the priesthood that the patriarch is carrying, not his, himself. It doesn't matter what he's doing in his personal life. Yeah? But also there's the general principle that as Christians we don't judge people. The same way we don't like being judged, we don't judge people. It doesn't matter who they are. Then you have, for example, 603. The hymn that you say at the end of the liturgy in the presence of the patriarch or bishop. You say, you know, yeah? you have received the grace of Moses, the priesthood of Melchizedek, the old age of Jacob, the long life of Methuselah, the excellent understanding of David, the wisdom of Solomon and the spirit, the paraclete, who came upon the apostles. A lot of those things are talking about Christ as well. Or give the image of Christ. May the Lord preserve the life and rising of our honoured Father, the High Priest, Pope Alva Twelfth II, etc. So all this has to be read in the context of Canonia. If you read it outside of that context, then you end up with funny arguments about church hierarchy. Not necessarily, no. Yes, to be a bishop, you have to be a monk. So only a monk can become a bishop, a married priest can't become a bishop. So can a priest become a monk? No. Only a, uh, so the bishopric and the papacy can only come from monks. So you put a glass if you want to look at it like that, yeah. <laughs> 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 if, you, if you want to look at it like okay. that, thanks, Sam. Yep. Oh, there's just a, a few parts that, the, like for example, the fraction praise, which we'll get up to in a couple of weeks. They depend on the season of the church, and then you have even and even within season you could choose 
from one of several prayers that you like. So at certain times he has to go back and forth. For the for things like the fraction, yeah, but in a lot of things, it's it, they're set. Yeah. So yeah, there's no specific instruction on on what to say, but usually, it's an instruction based on the gospel reading. Yeah. So usually, it's connected to the, it's a sermon is based around the 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 reading of the day. Yeah. Sermon. St. Cyril's is, was authored by St. Mark and edited by St. Cyril. So St. Cyril's is the most Coptic, almost Egyptian, almost Alexandrian liturgy. Okay. Yeah, of the three. Okay, just one question. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if we say that whatever we say to the Pope and the Bishop, yeah. but it's all towards Jesus Christ, then why don't we also say them to the people? Because the Bishop is the, you could say through apostolic succession, is the apostle of that area. So the Christ sent the apostles out. So in 2018, Amber Suriel is the apostle in Melbourne. But the bishop, because he can't be more than one place at one time, he ordains priests to be his proxy. So the priests are actually gathered around the bishop. So it's the bishop who preserves the apostolic succession in a place as opposed to the priest. Because the priest is just in one one area, one parish, one church. We're in Kensington, there's another priest in Preston, another one in St. Albans. Yeah? But then who preserves all of that together, that canonia in that geographical area? Uh, the bishop. In that parish, yes. On, on a much smaller level. And the dad does, mum and dad do it at home as well. Yeah. Mention his name as, as opposed to the bishop because the bishop is seen as the the authoritative link to Christ through apostolic succession. He has, the, he has the authority to ordain. He has the authority over what happens in his geography. The priest in his own parish, praise the liturgy, has limited authority in certain things, but he can't ordain, can't make any decisions regarding the teaching of the church that comes back to the bishop, things like that. So the bishop is sort of the, the person who makes those big calls. The priest... Uh, uh, serves under his direction, the bishop's direction. So the, the priest can't ordain. The priest isn't called to define the faith in the in the geography, geographical area. That's up to the bishop to do. I was just going to say, you also mentioned last week uh, that um, you would honour the priesthood in, a, in, a, in another part of, for example, during the service yeah. by sensing. Yes. Yeah. So, Abuna's priesthood, God's Christ's priesthood, is still honored through each of the parts. Yeah. So definitely, it's it's one priesthood. The priesthood of the bishop is the same as the priesthood of the of the priest. But in terms of what their role is, what their ministry is, there's different roles in the church. Yeah. The different hymns based on different roles in the church. Yeah. And even, for example, like Michael was saying, when the priest offers incense to another priest, depending on if that priest is, one, is a priest, he'll offer it once. If he's a, a higaman, he'll offer it twice. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
it's not cultural because it's biblical. So, and it extends across cultures. You'll find the same in the, in the Ethiopian church, in the Syrian church, in the Armenian church, in Russia, in Bulgaria, in Greece, in Rome. So it's not cultural because we, we see this evidence throughout different regions of the world across time. Um, it, it, you could look at it, it is a spiritual thing, but we add a cultural layer to it based on how, like for example, when, like when a priest comes to an Egyptian home in Upper Egypt, he's treated differently to if he enters a home in Taylor's Lakes. In Upper Egypt, like in, in Egyptian culture, authority or people are seen as very like but in australia for example if the prime minister walked across like across the road and you were having coffee you wouldn't stand up you're like no but in maybe in upper egypt that happens at all stand up there's slight cultural things And a sort of what, what, what sort of supports the argument of it's not about the person is because we do exactly the same practice regardless of how many years a person has been a bishop for, what, how old they are or how saintly they are. So there was a metropolitan who passed away a few years ago of Asyut. He was then the metropolitan when he was like 27. From 27, even if a 50-year-old priest has been a priest for 50 years walked to the church, he would treat him the same way he would treat a metropolitan of 60 years. So it's not about the person, but it's about the, the, the service or the ministry that they're given. But at the same time, you could look at it from two different angles. There's, like, like with everything in the church, for example, if you, if you made the altar very simple, you could say humility. If you make it very nice, you could say this is an expression of joy. If we have a wedding, if we, go to the, if we, go to, if we buy a new house, we, we put nice things. You don't say, I'm going to have a really basic kitchen top to be humble. Yeah, no, I'm going to have something nice. So you could take both, both ways. Both ways are okay. But as long as, it does, as long as the focus is on Christ, even for example, I have to be cautious saying this because people accuse, like could take this the wrong way, but even for example, the way we venerate saints in the church, if you have people who are too obsessed with the saint of the day, forgetting what the liturgy is about, about Christ, that's also dangerous. Yeah, like, I think that's slightly cultural, the names I think, yeah. But for example, like someone was making the point about like the hitens, the intercessions. They used to be like just five or six verses, now they're 30. People are adding their own one, like, and, and different ones. And they get upset if you don't do that one. Like, oh, how could you not say the martyrs? Like, guys, relax. It's not like, it's praise God through his saints. The, it's not the more you do, the more veneration that's happened. So there's also, we have to always remember why we're here. To glorify the Holy Trinity, to be connected to Christ. Praising God through His saints. Well, we're pretty late for time. Okay, let's just finish one more. The litany of the assemblies, and then we'll stop.
Okay, page 168. 168. This is the final of the final litany of the three great litanies. Again, let us ask God the Pantocrator, the Father of our Lord, God and Savior Jesus Christ, who ask and treat you goodness and love of mankind. Remember, O Lord, our assemblies, He crosses the people, bless them. Deacon gives instruction to pray for our church and for our assemblies. And then the priest takes the censer. Grant that they, they being this assembly, the gatherings of the people, when people come together, grant that they, that this assembly may be to us without obstacle or hindrance that we may hold them, them being these assemblies, according to your holy and blessed will. Houses of prayer, houses of purity, houses of blessing, grant them to us, O Lord, and to your servants who will come after us forever. The worship of idols utterly approved from the world, Satan or his evil powers trample and humiliate under their feet speedily. The, offen the offenses and the instigators abolish, etc. Just for time, you could read that. And then once he finishes that, they say the creed. Okay? And historically, people would leave... Uh, would leave after that point. All right. Let's 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 finish there. <laughs> Went over time slightly, but we're a small group, so I thought we'll just milk it while we can. Um, so next week there is no there is no other way, correct? Because it's the it's the eve of the feast of Saint Mary, and we'll continue the week after. We've got three more left, so we'll try squeeze it all in in three more. Um, so for last next week it's more focusing on text there's not many actions that happen in what we're covering next week and then the week after we're going to look at what happens when the priest holds um, the oblation in his hand and says he broke it he tasted etc the, oh, the week after next week sorry yeah <laughs>